Welcome to Star Drifter, the science fiction patio book series written and read by David Collins Rivera. Today's story, All He Surveys, Volume 1, Chapter 3. We arrived in far London system on schedule, making good time to Dinar, which was a space station at the edge of the system's best map jump point. It was, therefore, known as a rim station or rimstay, so named because it sat in solar orbit at the rim of the gravity well. Ships could arrive right nearby and then on and offload passengers and cargo, which in the case of cold passengers were the same thing, without ever entering into the system proper. This was just as well since far London had little more to offer than several gas giants, one of them a true brown dwarf that supposedly didn't have active fusion at its core, but which nonetheless threw off a lot of cruddy radiation. This made inter-vector journeys anywhere near it hazardous, though it was also unusual enough to be a scientific draw for people who were drawn to science. Dinar Station, safely clear of this odd neighbor, was itself pretty nice. A lot of rim stays in the Alliance were just small high docks, composed of little more than passenger terminals and cargo bays, usually with some temporary lodgings tossed in grudgingly. No one generally lingered on them since there was always someplace better to be and most people were either heading to one such or dreaming of it. In contrast, it wasn't much of a stretch to see Dinar, much bigger than any high dock, as someone's destination or long-term hangout. At some point, a corporate space company decided that rim stays in the Empire had growth potential, since many of them were located in systems that had almost nothing else to offer weary travelers. Their idea? Why not let the stations become the draw? The cash line of rim stays were developed as a result, with each one possessing the name of some obscure currency from the old days on Terra. In the last few years, I'd passed through big places called Ducat, Ruble, and Pound Sterling. From the outside, they all looked much alike, and the services available within were usually comparable. As a matter of design, however, retail and tourist attractions varied greatly, and I can say firsthand that none of the cash stations looked alike once you got through customs. There were fine restaurants amusement centers, shopping plazas, live theaters, swimming and diving facilities, and pretty much anything else. Some had sex districts, others were wreck drug havens, many were tacky, a select few luxurious, and gambling could be had in most. Cash rim stays were all alike and yet all different. There were even star jump tours by this point that simply went from one cash to another. I hadn't been to Dinar specifically, nor would I get the chance. The new chef was expected at any moment, 
along with not just an assistant, but his own sous chef, or the equivalent. This news had made Timot swear blue thunder and throw a measuring cup across the length of the kitchen so hard that the high-impact plastic actually cracked. He stalked off, and I heard later, he'd gone right to Director Suliarta and tendered his resignation. She knew the guy and his disposition and somehow talked him down. Still, his feelings were indicative of the larger mood of the kitchen. When the new boss finally appeared, Chef Irina entered with him, presenting a short, obese man with Asian features, dark skin, bald head, and a drooping silver mustache. He looked to be in his sixties. Quizzy, fête, attention, our chief called out formally. We stopped our endeavors and gave heed, the others out of respect, me out of confusion. All the French lingo in the kitchen was still off-putting. She gestured to the man, who stood there, taking everything in. He seemed a type who'd been in many a kitchen and was comfortable in his place, wherever that place happened to be. Right now, it was here, and so were we, and we were his. This is Chef Ziplentonva. Uh, did I say it right? And the man nodded. He is the personal chef for Mr. Fausel, who will soon be coming aboard with his family and staff. Chef Tonva is certified as an interstellar halal specialist and holds a ranking of eight in the Russie tier system. When I say he knows his business, you may believe it. I trust you will do me the honor of attending to his wishes as you would my own. Chef, the kitchen is yours. With that, and a slight bow, she withdrew. When she did, several other men whom I hadn't noticed up until then stepped forward from just outside the door. Like their chef, they were all in crisp white uniforms with wide black sashes along the middle. His lower half had been hidden by the counters and equipment of the kitchen, but as he moved around, I noticed that Chef Tonva had a very long apron, almost touching the floor, which from the front looked like a skirt. Over this and hanging at an angle below the sash like an old gunslinger's holster, he wore a belt with a series of six knives in leather cases, each of a different style and size a row of razor edges easily at hand. When coupled with his stated experience and skill, this likely made him one of the worst human beings in the galaxy to try and mug. The others of his attending staff each had one knife, except for a tall, thin man with a hard face who had two. If the number of knives were some sort of indicator of rank then this latter guy was probably the one who had caused Timote to break his unbreakable cup. One of the new chef's group spoke up first, a young man, hardly more than a boy. He was thin as a post, dark-haired, dark-complected, and plain-featured. He had a voice to match. I am Linesman Duca. This is under-chef Falaaloya, with which he gestured to Mr. Hardface. 
Chef Tonva and Under Chef Falaaloya do not speak English well, so I will translate anything that is not clear. We shall be among you to Kezika Station and Karaya System. Chef hopes we may all find this journey to be instructive. The boy ended this announcement with a deep bow, which, under the circumstances, seemed more awkward than respectful or charming. Timote had made his peace with the situation an hour or so before. Possibly he had realized the rest of us would still need an authority figure in the kitchen we could actually understand. He'd gone ahead and cleared a counter for any personal equipment and supplies the newcomers might have brought aboard. This proved to have been wise thinking, as the little round chef's subordinates carried in several cases that they proceeded to unpack once the space had been pointed out to young Duca. Most of these were portable racks of spices, herbs, and other ingredients, as well as three or four small kitchen gadgets of unknown designs. Our own sous-chef then gave Tonva, Falaaloya, and young Duca a tour of the kitchen, with the others in their group following behind at a respectful distance. Each member of Dorcas's staff still stood tall and erect at their assigned stations and offered quiet greetings as Timote made introductions. When they came to me, I got a nod from the chef, a glare from the under-chef, and a blank look from the linesman. The others didn't look at me at all. Dorcas was to be docked at Dinar for seven shifts, two and a half days, and passengers were already coming and going freely, exploring, shopping, and some even choosing to stay in fancy motels on station. Though already logged as passengers, Mr. Fausel and his family, who'd caused such disruption to the galley, had yet to set foot aboard. They'd be staying on Dinar until just a couple hours before launch. Doubtlessly, the expensive accommodations of an expensive station were even finer than those of this expensive ship, if only in terms of elbow room. Plus, there were diversions galore on a cash rim stay, including the aforementioned gambling in restaurants and the fact that Dinar was the current off-season home of a pro smackball team called the Thunderheads. They'd been interstellar champs in the mixed nationals a few years prior and finalists every season since. Diehard fans were known to make pilgrimages. Dinar sure was a glittery, exciting place, but the changeover from one chef to another meant that we in the galley were busy the whole time. Through Duca's reedy, imprecise English, his boss, the rotund halal specialist, expressed a wish that the already spotless kitchen be scrubbed down, top to bottom before departure, in anticipation of a blessing ceremony to be performed by an imam from the station. Apparently, in the Rusi'itir system, unlike the Brigade system, even those with the highest rankings were expected to pitch in for this sort of thing. Chef Tonva himself took up a bucket of cleanser and white vinegar, this last was traditional, and got down on his short, wide knees to scrub a section of the deck. He was too old and fat to actually do much work down there, but like nearly everything else about the situation, it was just a gesture. 
In Rusii, humility before Allah was important, and especially so for the most exalted. Those with rank in the kitchen were expected to personally demonstrate piety and cleanliness at all times. It didn't matter that most of us weren't Muslims. What mattered was that halal, as defined by this particular branch of Islam, was being scrupulously followed. It was a derivation, I later learned, called la'aka, which had flowered in space among Terran expats from some place called Pacifica on that tired old planet. Fairly modern in origin, having arisen after humanity had spread to the stars, some aspects of La'aka seem to be more pragmatic than they were dripping with mystic mumbo-jumbo and had been accepted by many factions as being part of the new Quranic law. This was a thing of reverence and great importance to a lot of people, including those cooks in this relatively small wedge of the empire who practiced the Rusii system of halal cookery. Characteristically, Timot had morphed into a good sport since his outburst, and now he rolled up his sleeves and pitched in with gusto. I doubted he'd done much cleaning himself since becoming a professional chef, but maybe he saw this as keeping in practice. Within the brigade kitchen system, the actual job was generally assigned to underlings like myself. As he worked at the ritual cleanup, the new chef and his people spoke to each other in a language I couldn't place. It sounded Terran and likely of some particular ethnicity. He peppered it with English words, or maybe more properly English, which was mostly just different in spelling and grammar. At some point, I know he switched to Seishan, the language of the noble families of the empire. Among the lower classes of the territory, and along its respective borders with Ainspace, Lowspeak was overwhelmingly the most widely used language, acting as a pigeon blend of seemingly everything. I'd gotten okay at catching the general drift of Lowspeak conversations over the years. It must be said, though, that while knowing a few words and phrases was certainly handy, every dialect of the language had its specifics. Minor peccadilloes of pronunciation and comprehension when traveling from one section of the territory to another could easily result in embarrassment or worse. After only a few minutes on the floor scrubbing away, Chef Tonva had to get back up, his unsteady frame helped by Duca and a hand on the counter. The old man then spoke to the young man, who announced that Chef had to meet with Mr. Fausel, and the old man tottered out alone. Several other members of the Fausel staff, besides those who made the food, had been coming and going from Dorcas of the Heather for a few hours, getting things ready for their employer and his family. The Fausels would not be the only passengers aboard by any means, but they'd certainly be the most pampered. And on Dorcas, that was saying something. Not long after our new chef departed, Fala'aloya also gave up on the cleaning and began setting up the spice racks and other equipment. These he placed around the kitchen, assigning some to each workstation. I, of course, didn't have one of those. After this, he tasked Duca with explaining the purpose of each spice to the kitchen staff, interrupting everyone scrubbing away. 
The cleaning was a religious rite, not a necessity, not in this kitchen. After a time, only the kitchen boy, Niran, and myself were left with scrub brushes, rank ever hathing its privileges. We were coming up on midshift meal, what some people called lunch. The underchef, through Duca, proceeded to organize several savory casseroles, as well as a huge pot of fragrant rice, mixed grains, and lots of lentils, with some beautiful and exotic salads on the side. He did a lot of pantomiming to the Dorcas staff. Naturally, the new arrivals, the redundant cleaning, and the delays in translation and instruction knocked the shift to pieces, and we were way behind our time. Seemingly recognizing this as an undeniable reality, Fala Aloya just did a quick once-over of the sides and desserts already in the works for anything that might be haram, that is, containing ingredients forbidden under La'aka Islam, and then ordered them to be plated alongside the items ordered. He did, however, add ground cardamom and pistachio to the puddings, and to the salad, he drizzled on a thin balsamic vinegar that was pungent and strangely yellow under the harsh kitchen lights. Eventually, someone called for Niran's help, leaving me to continue the ritual cleaning alone. Because of all this disruption, and indeed confusion, Timote told me to just keep at it and to not get in anyone's way. Evidently, no one was going to miss the help of a butter-fingered, know-nothing dilettante. Yukus was right to be angry. She had worked her butt off and gotten wildly lucky just to have a chance to be in a galley with a Ludorf winner of any kind, let alone people like Chef Irina and Timote. Then I come along, sands the work and sweat and long hours and lousy kitchens that everyone else on the team had had to endure and overcome. I could have argued that I'd paid my dues in other ways, but what was the point? It was apples and oranges, or maybe apples and crowbars. One had absolutely nothing to do with the other. That was precisely why I'd taken the job to turn a corner and start something new, something fun and interesting. Never mind that both those things had been elusive thus far. The potential was there, or had seemed to be, looking at it from the outside. Ultimately, it would have gotten me clear of a dying industry while it was still my choice to do so. Fleet had essentially wiped out piracy on the Alliance side of the border while the Imperials had been doing their own cleanup in a most dashing and efficient way, at least in this part of the territory. When I'd first gotten into the field of ship defense, so many years before, it had seemed to be a career as solid as stone. But things change. Politics, priorities, technology. People... Well, they change, too, if they want to keep working. If they want to keep their personal goals on track and their lives adding up to a positive sum. What would it mean to and for me if I couldn't do it anymore? I saw no answer, except that it was now screamingly clear that any such meaning wouldn't include gastronomy. I could probably continue in it for a while, maybe even assemble enough know-how to work as a short-order guy in a dive somewhere. 
but that wouldn't get me where I intended to go. In an indifferent galaxy, you had to have a vested interest in yourself. You had to have focus and a clear goal because the vacuum outside always did, and there was plenty of it. I'd have labeled this whole food service thing as a waste of time and effort, except it had answered one vital question. Could I really do anything else? Commercial gunnery wasn't an art. It wasn't a science. It touched on both, along with healthy doses of engineering, computer science, international law, and spatial navigation. But really, it was its own thing. And I was good at it. No lie, one of the top-rated independent commercial gunners for hire along the border between the Alliance and the Empire. <laughs> for all that was worth anymore. The mood of the kitchen was subdued. I resolved to turn my brain off, do what I was told, and just get through the shift, the cruise, and my contract. Life decisions could wait that long, at least. Timote was consulting with Duca off to one side, apparently going over the menu as set out by the chef. I'd have expected that to be communicated and understood long before the turnover, but considering how last minute all of this had been, maybe they were only now ironing out the details. Across the galley, Zene Michaels, the patissiere, was working on an unfamiliar flake-crust dessert thing that seemed to be made of fruit and nuts and precious little actual pastry. She had a laser-like focus on the task, which invited neither inquiry nor interruption. Whatever she was attempting, it was new, and she looked like she'd rather die in harness than fail at it. I felt a sudden jolt of admiration and sadness for that kind of passion. Admiration because I truly comprehended her enthusiastic dedication. I knew exactly what it took out of you to pursue such a thing and what it offered in return. Sadness because I understood it only in context of a career I no longer had. You have been listening to All He Surveys, Volume 1, a Star Drifter novel written and read by David Collins Rivera. This story is copyright 2022 by David Collins Rivera and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 international license. Feel free to use it for any purpose, even commercial, and I encourage you to do so. The Star Drifter theme is a piece called i by Trunks and can be found on SoundCloud.com. The All He Surveys theme is a piece called Blossom by Edward Maloff and is licensed through tribeofnoise.com. This story is a work of fiction and is not based upon nor meant to portray any person living or dead nor any particular place or situation. Any similarities to such are purely coincidental. You can contact me at lostinbronx at gmail.com. That's L-O-S-T-N-B-R-O-N-X at gmail. 
You can also check out my site, davidcollinsrivera.com, where you'll find everything Star Drifter, including more audio novels and stories, the Star Drifter tabletop role-playing game, podcasts, newsletters, and more. Stop by, won't you, and drop me a line. Thank you for listening. Take care.